This is the Calvary Bible Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in today. We're praying this message encourages you. Learn more about Calvary and join us online each Sunday for services at calvarybible.com. Hey everybody, I'm John, one of the pastors here at Calvary. Glad you're with us for Calvary Online. I'm thankful that Thomas was able to be with us last week and I'm glad to be back with you today as we continue our study in the book of Hebrews. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 6 today. So grab your Bibles and turn with me there. Hebrews is in the New Testament towards the end of your Bible. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 20 today. We've called our series, our study together in the book of Hebrews, Greater Than. It was written to a group of first century Christians, new followers of Jesus, who had a background, a history in Judaism. That's why it's called the book or the letter or the sermon to the Hebrews. And the author wanted his friends, these early Christians, to know that Jesus was greater than any problem that they might face, greater than anyone they could imagine. And we've seen through the first six chapters of Hebrews how Jesus is greater than even the Old Testament prophets, greater than Old Testament leaders like Moses, greater even than angels. That's what we need more than anything, is a bigger, larger view of Jesus to see him as superior to anything we can imagine, to see him as greater than the problems or the challenges that we might face in our life so that we won't drift and so that we'll stick close to him. Confidence, certainty that Jesus is greater than anything. If we have that, if we have that kind of certainty about Jesus being superior to everything, then we'll be defined by one of the key characteristics that has defined Christians from the beginning, hope. Last week, we left off in verses 11 and 12 of Hebrews chapter 6, which said, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Hope is one of the pillars of the Christian life. It's one of three values that the Apostle Paul talks about all the time through his letters, faith and love and hope. It's like one of the three legs of a stool that upholds the Christian. And today in verses 13 through 20 of Hebrews chapter 6, we're going to see why we can be certain, assured, confident in hope. Hope is more than just a Christian quality. It's something everyone longs for. Who knows how many books have been written, how many seminars have been given, how much advice has been shared about how to have hope. President Obama's campaign slogan for his first run for the presidency was summarized in one word, hope. When we think about hope, we probably think about an attitude or a feeling. That's how most of us would define hope. But the biblical definition of hope is not one of an attitude or a feeling because those kinds of things can ebb and flow based on our circumstances. If our grades are good, if the project at work is on time and on budget, then we feel hopeful. But if there's a market correction in the stock market or if the weather changes and our vacation is canceled, well, then what? Does our hope change? The Christian idea of hope is not an attitude or a feeling, and it's not subject to a change of circumstance, but it is rooted in reality. It's not wishing that something unlikely may happen. It's knowing confidently 
what will occur. According to our text today, our hope as Christians is rooted in three things. The Word of God, the character of God, and the Son of God. Let's begin with the Word of God in verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 6. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Abraham is one of the most important Old Testament figures. He's referred to several times in the book of Hebrews. He's like the founding father of the Jewish people. If you want to follow along as we, for a few moments, trace the history of Abraham and how he is such an important Old Testament figure, keep your finger here in Hebrews chapter 6 and turn with me to the very first book in your Bible, Genesis. And we'll begin in Genesis chapter 12. That's where we meet Abraham for the first time. At this point in his life, he's known as Abram. And God appears to Abram, kind of out of nowhere, and says to him, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In these verses, God makes a threefold, unconditional promise to Abraham. First, that Abraham will have a great name. Second, that in Abraham will come a great nation. And finally, through Abraham, all nations in the world will be blessed. That's quite a promise especially when you know that at this point, when God revealed himself to Abram, Abram was 75 years old. And he and his wife, who were 65, were without children. They had longed to have a child together, but now they're in their old age and it's impossible for them to have them. And so for God to say, I will make of you, Abram, a childless man, a great nation, is a spectacular promise. Over the next 10 chapters in Genesis, which spans about 25 years of Abram's life, God reaffirms his promise to Abram several times. He changes Abram's name to Abraham. And in chapter 21 of Genesis, in verses 1 through 3, God shows up. It says, The Lord visited Sarah, Abraham's wife, as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah born to him, Isaac. Abraham was a hundred years old when Isaac was born. Sarah was 90. We can only imagine how joyful they must have been to welcome their promised son in their old age. And then how disorienting it would have been for them in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, when God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. 
And in one of the most extraordinary accounts in Scripture, Abraham and Isaac travel three days to where God had told them to go. They build an altar of sacrifice. Isaac lays on it. And just as Abraham is ready to slay him, God stays his hand and says, in verses 12 and 13 of Genesis 22, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And the promised son, Isaac, lived. There's so much more to discover about this event between Abraham and Isaac. And our author in Hebrews, in chapter 11, goes into it in more detail and explains what's happening and how Abraham could do such a thing and have such tremendous faith in God. But because of Abraham's unwavering belief in God in this extraordinary moment, God once again reaffirms his promise, this time with an oath. In verses 16 through 18 of Genesis 22, where God says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because, Abraham, you have obeyed my voice. So let's tease this out. Did God keep his word to Abraham? The promise that he made to Abraham 4,000 years ago. Is God a promise keeper? Well, let's think about the three categories of the promise that God made to Abraham. First, he said, I will give you a great name. Okay, 4,000 years removed from this event, we're still talking about Abraham today. Three of the largest world religions look to Abraham as their founding father. Christianity, Islam, and Judaism all revere Abraham, all look to him as an amazing example of faith and obedience. They all revere the name of Abraham. So did God keep his promise in the first category? Seems like it. The second one was that he would make him a great nation, which of course seemed impossible when Abraham was childless. But through Isaac and then Jacob, whose name becomes Israel, and then the 12 tribes of Israel are are born, did God make a great nation out of Abraham? Absolutely. Millions of people today are Jews who identify their lineage back to Abraham. Countless people who have lived throughout history look to Abraham as their father. God has made a great nation through Abraham. How about the third category of the promise? That through Abram, all nations of the earth will be blessed. The Apostle Paul explains in Galatians 3 that this promise made to Abraham and his offspring that we just read was not made to offsprings, meaning many or plural, but to a singular offspring. Who is that? Jesus Christ. And so, have all nations of the earth been blessed by the Son of God, Jesus Christ? 
This is the ultimate fulfillment of the promise that God made through his word to Abraham. The ultimate fulfillment of God's word to his people. That in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, all nations, all people would find blessing because of salvation, which is found in Jesus Christ alone. Can you live with hope in that reality? Can you have hope in God's word because of his promise to you? If you receive it and believe it and obey it, you can have hope because of God's promised word. No matter where you are, no matter what circumstances you find yourself in, God is speaking to you today, clearly communicating to you through his word that his son of God might be a blessing to you if you received the free gift of salvation that is found in Jesus. And God's promise continues to be fulfilled. And we will see, God promises, one day that every tongue, every tribe, every nation will bow their knee to the Lord and King and Savior, Jesus Christ. His promise will be fulfilled. So our hope is promised in the Word of God. And it's confirmed in the character of God. Back to Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it's impossible for God to lie, we, who have fled for refuge, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. It's kind of surprising that God would swear, isn't it? That he would make an oath to Abraham in addition to his promise in his word. Why would he do that? It, it seems unnecessary. Our text tells us that he desired, God desired to show more convincingly the unchangeable character of his purpose. He wanted humans to know, to be convinced that his promises were unwavering. And so he did something that all humans of all ages for all time have done. He made an oath. Even children make an oath. Okay, I'll meet you at the playground after recess. Do you swear? I swear. And then they double down on it. Do you pinky swear? I pinky swear, they say. We might even say when we share something confidential with someone, okay, I'd like to tell you this, but but I need you to swear to me that you won't tell anybody else. If we ever have to testify in a trial, we have to swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. When people step into political office, they take an oath of office, and they're required to put their left hand on a Bible and raise their right hand and take an oath and swear to uphold the duties and responsibilities of the office they have been elected to. An oath is a universal way that humans make legally binding agreements. And you know, God making an oath is an example of his character. It helps us understand a little bit more about who he is and, and what he is like. I think in, in God's willingness to make an oath, it demonstrates to us his humility. God regularly humbles himself as he reveals himself to humanity. 
Just think, God, God didn't have to, to come from heaven and reveal himself to Abram. He didn't have to speak to him. He didn't have to give us his word. He didn't have to tell us everything we needed to know about him. He didn't have to help us understand who he is by communicating to us in a way that humans can understand, in spite of the fact that he is an almost unimaginably glorious being because he is greater than anyone. The almighty creator of everything has spoken to us. God is humble. And, And in this experience of God making an oath, He humbles himself so that we might have confidence, so that we might be assured in his promise, so that he might demonstrate his character to us. Think of all the other ways that God has demonstrated his humility, that he would send his son, his only son to the world to be born a baby, not born in glory and pomp and circumstance, but born in the humble state of a manger. That he would live, not not protected, not as a king, not in glory and wealth, but a simple life, tempted, without a place to lay his head. And of course, the most humiliating thing that God has ever experienced is the crucifixion. That he wouldn't just live a human life, but that he would die an inglorious human death. The death of a thief or a murderer. That God would die on our behalf. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped or held onto, but he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, so that we might live. We see God's humble character as he stoops down to us and demonstrates his willingness to help us understand with an increasing knowledge of who he is, his unwavering character, who he is, that he is humble. What else do we learn about God's character from these verses? Well, verse 18 says that God cannot lie. It's one of the problems with promises or oaths in our world. How many promises have been broken? How many oaths have been violated? But with God, it says in verse 18, it is impossible for him to lie because God is a truth teller. He would cease to be God if he were to lie because he cannot. It is impossible for God to to lie. It's part of his character to be a truth teller. It's who he is. The Old Testament book of Numbers in chapter 23 and verse 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie. He is unlike us. He's different than people who break a promise or people who might violate an oath. He can never lie. Numbers goes on to say, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Not only is it impossible for God to lie, but his character is unchangeable. Just as it says in Numbers that he's not a man, that he should change his mind, verse 17 of Hebrews 6 says that God's character is unchangeable. He doesn't evolve or mature. He doesn't regress or get tired. God is unchanging. And the unchangeable character of God leads to an unshakable hope in the life of a Christian. Our hope is promised first in the word of God, and second, confirmed by the character of God, and third, it's secured through the Son of God. Look at verse 19. It says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope 
that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is ultimately how God's promise to Abraham finds its fulfillment and how our hope is secured through the work of Jesus, his son. And our secure hope is described by our author as an anchor. This was a common symbol for first century Christians. An anchor which holds a boat in place and keeps it from drifting and holds it steady during a storm. And this anchor, our author says, is sure and steadfast. Just as God's character is unchangeable, our hope is immovable. It's like an anchor securely holding us. And where is this anchor located? In the inner place behind the curtain. This is a reference to the earthly tabernacle or temple, the center of Old Testament Jewish tradition, where once a year the high priest would enter through a curtain to the inner place known as the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God dwelt on the earth and the high priest would enter there to make a sacrifice on behalf of himself and God's people and to atone for their collective sin. That's where our hope resides, my friends, in the presence of God, not in an earthly place, but now in heaven, in God's eternal presence. Why? Because Jesus has gone there first as our forerunner, and he secured our salvation, our hope in God's presence. This word forerunner in our first century context would have referred to a small boat that would have gone before a larger boat and would have carried an anchor through stormy waters into a safe harbor to anchor the larger boat until the storm passed. So that when the sea was calm, the larger vessel could make its way into the safety and security of the harbor where the anchor had been all along. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. You guys, our hope is promised in the Word of God, confirmed by the character of God and secured through the Son of God. So we can be certain, confident, assured in our hope. If you're not feeling hopeful today or you're uncertain whether your hope is secure, I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to help answer questions. I'd love to help demonstrate for you how you might find eternal, long-lasting, stable, and steadfast hope in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. You can reach out to us at calvarybible.com. You can click this link to send us a note. We'd love to hear from you and help you find hope and safety and security in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. We thank you for the promises that you make to us. We thank you for your unchanging character. And we thank you for the security that is found in your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray for my friends every friend who's watching and listening today, that they might have a deeper and more lasting confidence in the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. We give you thanks, God, for the gift of your Son. And we pray all of this in his mighty name. Amen.